Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone welcome back to podside picnic as always i'm connor and i am here with my adventurous co-host pete and today we also have a very special guest she is science fiction writer rs benedict who is also i don't mind saying launching her own podcast called write good about writing which we are very excited about and she's joining us to talk about the film advantageous which is a neat little sci-fi flick from a few years ago that is available on Netflix, and we're going to go into great detail on that. But first, um, R.S. Raquel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, we were we're super excited to uh, add you to our brief, but hopefully growing list of actual sci-fi writers we're having on the show. <laughs> um, and I'll kick it over to Pete to get things rolling. Yep. Uh, well, I'm I'm going to start with a question, but before I do, I would like to point out that this movie, Advantageous, is currently available for free on Netflix, and we are going to spoil the crap out of it. So yep. if that upsets you, go watch the movie, okay? It's very good. Um, it, the only thing is that if you are a single woman in your 30s, it might make you want to kill yourself. Just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good content warning. It's a really good movie. <laughs> Okay, so um, when I was watching this, I found myself dealing with small details as an avoidance strategy. Like, I found myself, like, uh, James Urbaniak, who did, like, the Dr. Venture cartoons, was Hmm. the boyfriend. And I found myself going down that rabbit hole. It's, oh, listen to his voice. How much is it like? And I figured out it's because, like, (laughs) a lot of what's going on in this film is, like, this poor woman is being manipulated by corporate America. They make deliberate choices to make her her career end, so she has to make these awful choices. And, um... Like I know you have a nine to five, and you've been you've been doing that. Did it connect with you that way, and how did you respond? Well, um, my nine to five is not quite as bleak as it is in the movie, but oh my god, when I was hunting for a job, this really connected me. The idea of diminishing opportunities, the idea of oh my gosh, I have all these wonderful things to offer, but the free market doesn't want it. The job market does not want any of this. Hearing you're overqualified, which is basically a way of saying, like, we want a 21-year-old that we can take advantage of, um, it it really, really, really hit home. And a lot of it in, hit home for me as a woman. This is a science fiction movie that deals with women's issues in a way that I find incredibly truthful and real in a way that very few women or science or, or – feminist science fiction stories do like I like um well I haven't seen the show I've just read the novel but I I like The Handmaid's Tale but that's I'm not feeling like that you know 
But this, I find like, oh, God. Yep, that's me. <laughs> In some ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, that makes sense to me because, like, I, I've been watching The Handmaid's Tale with my wife, too, which mostly involves me burying my face in the couch during certain yeah. scenes. I'll own that. But, like, fundamentally, like, most of us aren't having to, uh, I, I don't know how to say it, baby farm. But we're all trying to find work and trying to figure out ways to survive. Right. And, and, and this, I, yeah. And I, uh, something that I think is really interesting in this is that The Handmaid's Tale is all about how this theocratic patriarchy uh, government commodifies women's bodies and controls women and controls women's bodies. This is a movie about the control of women and the commodification of women's bodies, but not as sort of a personal religious thing, but as a commodity on the free market, as a tradable commodity on the free market. And like any other commodity, our, our main character, her body is depreciating in value to put it in a really cold horrible way and i feel like that's more like the boat that a lot of us are in right now i i, I mean granted i don't live in a religious community at all but i'm not feeling handmaid's tale i am definitely feeling advantageous <laughs> yeah i honest, yeah. oh go ahead man oh i just want to say interestingly the more that you talk about that one of the striking things is that you know, it, it is very much about her aging body and repl and replacing her body, of course, uh, right. is key to the plot. But it's like, uh, in, in a very particular way, it's about how can she function as a corporate symbol? Because she's, of course, in charge of, she's going to be the spokesperson or has been the spokesperson for right. uh, this particular technology, which we find out essentially, it, they, they, they market it as a body transfer for your consciousness, but essentially it's a cloning and an imperfect cloning. Spoiler. That moves. Yeah, spoiler, yeah. of course, but it, it moves your consciousness into a essentially a new body. And, and the you know, one of the conundrums is to what extent does this create a new self? And interestingly in all of that is that it's like a pure calculation of marketability. It's not that like not much is made of the main character's sexuality, for instance, like no. sexuality is interesting only insofar as it can be used in a kind of an abstract way for marketing. Right. Um, you know, and she's already like she's already had a daughter and doesn't intend to have more children. And there is a lot of talk about fertility and how most women aren't fertile, but she still is. But all of these like more traditionally imminent things about women's bodies are kind of pushed to the side. And it's more like we abstract the level of what can a woman's body symbolize purely. Right. right? And how, how can it sell? How well can it sell? What's its market value? Yeah. And absolutely. In an absolutely brutal way where it's like, Oh, what is yeah. the <laughs> very, very cold film? I mean, I guess we should fill people in a little bit on the premise, which is that it's a somewhat recognizable, maybe not super duper distant future where essentially our neoliberal globalized capitalism has intensified. And so you have like flying cars, but uh, work is increasingly scarce. There's sort of a uh constant but sort of covered up sort of terrorist movement going on. We're not really clear on that. It seems like a lot of women have become, I think the word neo-traditional is used and, a lot, and people right. are sort of like moving back towards women should be homemakers. So there's more jobs for men essentially. Um, yeah, because these unemployed men are blowing up buildings and unemployed women aren't doing that. So they figure it's safer to have women out of work and to push women back into the house instead of having uh, angry dudes setting things on fire. Um, yeah, which, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and, and 
you know, the maid, of course, the reason the character undergoes all of this is because she has a daughter and she wants to get her daughter into the best schools and set up the, the opportunities for her kid. Really, in this world, just to have a chance to be a happy, thriving person, it's right. tooth and nail competitive. It's like you essentially have to succeed at the equivalent now of like top tier Ivy League college admissions to have like any chance in this world. Right? Absolutely any chance. And I think it's important to note that in this world, Gwen, that's her main character, is a single mom. She doesn't have a husband. Um, her daughter was actually the result of an affair with her cousin's husband. And uh, it's not explicitly stated, but it's very strongly implied that her father was sexually abusive toward her. So I think that goes a long way to explaining why she's so insistent on being independent, on not depending on a husband or on a man, and making sure that her daughter, Jules, can support herself if she needs to. Because... When you're 100% dependent on a father, on a husband, it can work pretty badly. It can end pretty badly like it did for Gwen. Yeah. And, I, and see, this is where Pete and I, I won't speak for Pete, but I definitely have blind spots because I didn't pick up on sexual abuse angle when I watched this. But actually, now that you mention it. Oh, yeah. That conversation yeah. with her mom, it's not explicitly yeah. stated, but the way it's done, like the mom says, oh, it's over. I forgive you. Which is like a thing that fucking assholes say to sexual abuse victims, like, well, it takes two, you know. And, and the way that um, mom mentioned, we'd oh, your father would really like to meet Jules, that's the daughter, and her reaction to it, like, no, 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 no. That reaction of horror, like, I will die before my father meets my daughter. Um, and the fact also that this conversation is happening in a public park where in the background there's a little girl who's returning yes. from what looks like uh, turn and tricks in the park. She's changing out of a weird silvery sex mask and switching out a pair of red high-heeled shoes for like little ballet flats. It's just horrifying. So it's like... That's the part that was giving me the willies. Oh, yeah. It's well, it so disturbing. Was, but like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically like... in reconnecting Jules with uh, Gwen's father would basically be pimping her out. And that's sort of, here's the choice that a woman's going to have to make in this system of diminishing economic opportunities. It's absolutely horrifying. Reminds me of the, uh, the homeless girl when she's, when she's right. on the phone with that horrible employment right. agency and they're offering to harvest her eggs. And the girl yep. is like, take the job. Just take whatever you can get, Oof. dude. And I, I be honest, I, I actually, I kind of, I, um, my roommate had been playing a lot of video games the last few days, so I didn't get to watch this till just this morning. <laughs> uh, and I think that I, uh, missed a lot of these things that you were both picking up on, which once again speaks to audience and my blind spots. Cause some of it, I was like, oh, I feel like there's a lot here that's not being fleshed out or not really being said. And thank you both for filling in some of the horrible details. <laughs> I have more to think about. Yeah, it's kind of subtle. A lot of details are in the background, and I've watched this movie a bunch of times to prepare, so repeated viewings really help you pick up on these tiny little details that add just an extra dimension of horror to everything. Well, let's let's kind of talk about this. Like, I, I've, I've already told you, like, I really like this movie, but I also found it to be a really dense text. Like, there oh, was yeah. a lot going on. Yeah, so... Um, I don't know, like workplace issues, uh, feminism, economic pressure. There's like 20 things going on. And yeah. like, was that a strength to you of the film? Or do you think it would have been improved if it had been simplified? Where do you stand on that? 
I think it's a mixed bag. In some ways, I think it's great just because usually when we have trouble going on in our life, it's not the one thing. Like, ah, it's just this one thing that's causing problems. It's usually like, it's a million things. It's like, oh my God, my job's giving me trouble and I'm having health problems and there's family issues and some weird political shit's going on. It's like just pressure from a million different sources. Um, I think part of the reason it feels dense too is just this is a very low budget movie and the low budget shows. They're, the streets are really, really empty. In a lot of scenes, they probably couldn't afford many extras, and it creates this really sterile effect that I think works, but I think a lot of this explication probably could have been better handled by, like, visual storytelling in the background, but they just didn't have the budget to do that, unfortunately. So there are these moments where they just slam a line of dialogue in, like, uh, hey, mom, did you know I'll probably be infertile by the age of 20? Yeah. As opposed to maybe, like, some kind of ads going on in the background or, or something like that. Um, it, it would have been a little more elegant, but they just didn't have the money to do it. I mean, imagine going to an entertainment producer and saying, hi, I want to make a science fiction movie about how capitalism abuses women and the main character is a middle-aged woman and the cast is predominantly not white. Will you give me money? Like, no, <laughs> people aren't going to fund that, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, happy That's thoughts. a really good point, actually. Yeah, that, that yeah, you like, could have achieved the kind of like semiotic density that you have in a movie like Blade Runner, for instance. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that would have been cool to see in this world. But the idea that this is the, exactly the kind of thing that is just not going to get that kind of budget is. Oh. No. Yeah. Hi, let's make a movie starring a middle aged woman. How, who wants to fund this? No one? Okay. Right. That, yeah. that belabors, belabors how isolated she feels and how the market, a marketplace that is recognizably similar to ours, although it's accelerated, right. is just incredibly alienating and hostile and, and treating her like completely fungible trash. <laughs> That's going to be a tough one. I mean, well, in this uh, age of, of prestige TV, like I'm, I'm supremely distrustful of like, uh, of Amazon and Netflix and even Disney as like content aggregators. Right. Like I think they really take something away, but this is a pretty good counterexample because like I have not gone deep into the backstory of this, this, I basically just read the Wikipedia article, but it does seem to me that this film would have had some trouble getting made oh, had absolutely. Netflix not stepped forward. Forward. Yeah, I mean, I Netflix is definitely a mixed bag for sure, but I do appreciate the fact that they make movies and series about women that usually don't get movies or shows made about them, like women who are over the age of 25, women who weigh more than 120 pounds, women who aren't white and affluent, like they're really good about that. Like I can't imagine even network television making a series like Russian Doll, which is all about this woman who's just basically like a giant ball of chaos who makes terrible it's choices. It's so good. It's awesome. And it's like a story about a woman who's fucked up and flawed and not a role model. And it's really hard to find that. Even when you find movies that are the main character is a woman, she has to be like a good girl who's conventionally attractive and young and admirable and aspirational. And Netflix doesn't do that, which I really appreciate. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, out there in the wilds of like Twitter discourse, everybody's constantly ripping on Netflix, even though a lot of them are constantly watching Netflix shows. Yeah. It's an easy punching <laughs> bag, right? Because it's the, it's the apex of the algorithmic 
doing way too much redundant content, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, it is. But, and I mean, their horror movies fucking suck. Like Netflix horror movies are just generic garbage, but I really do appreciate them making movies or shows about women who are a little bit more like the women I know who are generally a fucking mess. <laughs> right. And I will also shout out Netflix just as a, since we do a genre fiction podcast, like that we've done two episodes now about Netflix exclusive things. Yeah. One being this movie and the other being love, death and robots. And oh. I think both are phenomenal and cool things that, uh, wouldn't exist without Netflix. Right. So, um, Again, I'm going to pretend that there are Netflix executives hearing me say this. Yeah. Uh, probably <laughs> Sponsorship not. deal. Hello. Yes. Right. But like, please, if you're listening to this, uh, do more of these immensely original things that wouldn't happen otherwise right. and less redundant, generic, uh, you know, kind of faux golden age prestige TV. Yeah. Less <laughs> well, generic so I, horror. Oh, God. I love horror, yeah. but Netflix original horror movies suck. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's a true thing. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, so, so. Let, let's based on what you guys are talking about uh let's let's get a quorum here do you think it's the algorithm do you like one of the things that netflix is doing really really well is gathering data from us and figuring out what draws our Oof. eyes do you think it's just they're mathematically and cold-bloodedly going these people want stories more about themselves and that's it or do you think there's actually some people there advocating for good good tv I think it's always a mix of things when you're talking about content production, which is a horrifying dystopian phrase. But when you're thinking about making media, making movies, making stories, there is always this uncomfortable balance of on the one hand, you got to make money and keep the lights on and you are a corporation and you need to make profit. But on the other hand, I'm sure there are people there who take pride in their work. And I'm sure there are people there who want to make something kind of beautiful and meaningful and I don't know which end of the spectrum is stronger over there in Netflix. I, I, I don't. Um, but I'm just going to be happy that they're making some good shit. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, we're probably about halfway through here, and I think it's uh, we've warmed up enough that uh, it's it's a good time for me to make a confession. Okay. I was so excited because I went out and I ordered uh, one of the year's best science fiction books. Oh, holy crap. Yeah, and so I was going to pre-read your story, and I was pumped, and it arrived yesterday, and it was the 33rd edition, not the 35th. So I don't oh, have no. your story. Yeah, so like... Uh, whoops. <laughs> but like what I was hoping to do, because like I know that this particular movie was meaningful for you. Like we were talking about a couple, but you kept going back to this one. And I was wondering, is there a relationship between this movie and your writing? Like, does it resonate on that level to you? Well, it, it has a lot in common with some themes that I keep going back to in my writing. My writing often explores themes of personal identity and body horror. Um, yeah. And, I mean, this is a great example of, of a movie that addresses both the idea of who are you and this idea of what she goes through is kind of more done in a science fiction way than in a gooey David Cronenberg way, but... It is body horror. That It's horrifying, this thing that she has to go through. I mean, she has to take giant injections into her stomach every two hours so that her new body doesn't forget to breathe. And um, I find in my work, I keep returning to this notion of what people, particularly what women go through 
in in this quest to be better and to make a new you like so many advertisements diet beauty fitness advertisements tell us to get a new you and in in this way it's going very literal like i i have a couple of stories about people who kind of create a new you my english name which is the one that kind of got big is about a creature i guess you'd call him an imitation human who just creates new identities every couple of years and they sort of slowly decay but um the very first scene is of a woman entering a hotel room and just tearing off her skin and then putting on a new one and learning how to be a man and um oh, wow yeah oh and okay so this <laughs> this sounds like a much more visceral have you ever read the belonging kind no. william gibson I haven't. Oh, he, he does this story about this guy who is a dork who never fits anywhere and eventually figures out that he's part of another species oh. that is designed to chameleon with humans and be different things in different situations. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and like what you what you're doing seems a lot more raw and frankly is thus more interesting to me, but like drawing that dotted line across especially because you haven't read the story is pretty cool. Neat. I mean, I think this is a, a thing that a lot of us write. So many fairy tales have this sequence where somebody becomes new. Like you've got Cinderella, you've got the ugly duckling. There's something very compelling to human beings about completely changing who you are and becoming a new person. But if you've done that, what? there's also this other side of like, well, who the fuck am I then? And who was this other person? Was this person okay? Was this other person bad? How should I feel about the old me? Should I hate the old me? Right. right. That's, I mean, I, and, and I think that a lot of genre fiction, unfortunately, probably even, my, probably including my own work, does <laughs> a, a version of the movie you were saying earlier about making protagonists entirely too aspirational. Right. And uh, it seems like you're partly working to correct that. So I want to ask you, um, you know, how did you first move towards writing fiction generally? And how did you find yourself being a science fiction writer? How did that process happen? Well, I've always been writing stories ever since I was a kid. Um, it was just sort of a natural progression for me. I can't really remember a time when I sat down and decided I'm going to be a writer. And I read a lot of sci-fi as a kid, a lot of, a bit of fantasy as a kid, a lot of horror. I read a ton of horror when I was a kid. I was addicted to like R.L. Stein and then Christopher Pike and then Stephen King. Um, but the decision to write science fiction or fantasy or horror, or a lot of my work is like kind of difficult to pin down into one genre or another. Um, I've heard a lot of positive reviews of my work that are like, I liked it, but it's not sci-fi or I liked it, but it's not really horror. I don't know. But, um, it wasn't a conscious decision to write genre fiction. I just choose to write it because I think it's a really handy way of making metaphors physical. It's exploring some kind of social metaphor, some kind of emotional metaphor in a really horrifying physical way that's hard to ignore. And uh, science fiction allows you to do that in a way that literary fiction makes a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I think that's a very... Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And that's an awesome uh, way of looking at it. Uh, do you, what are some of the biggest, you already mentioned some of the horror influences on you. Um, what are some of your like favorite sci-fi writers and, and what's their influence on you? Well, Kurt Vonnegut, I, I know he 
some the literary camp has kind of claimed them for him for themselves, but <laughs> right. he, the I, I consider <laughs> him I consider him a bit of a sci-fi writer. And Shirley Jackson, too. I guess she's a little bit more horror. Um, those are some big influences of mine. Kafka, I, I could, would consider maybe magical realism or, or fantasy or a little bit of sci-fi. Um, a lot of these people that we consider great writers, they're sort of genre fiction writers, but the, the schools don't really want you to think of them as that because it's too serious and important. <laughs> they're very big influences on my work. This, yeah, I've, I've, I'm still, I'm still sitting back and processing your last question. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the worst things about being on doing a podcast is you can't stop and right. think and come back. But I mean, you, the way, the way you look at genre fiction and the way you tie it together is really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I've, I want to talk about the little details some more because like Absolutely. when, when we were going back and forth on this a little, and you talked about a moment that at the time I just sort of brushed over. And then when I thought about it is clearly the most terrifying portion of the film for me as somebody who's had to hard scrabble for jobs. Right. And that is that horrible voice on the phone and not knowing whether it's a person or not. Yeah, that's terrifying. I've seen this movie multiple times and I'm still not 100% sure whether or not that guy is a human being or whether it's like some kind of fucked up AI that's breaking down. And I'm still not sure. Do I sure. sound like a human to you? Yeah. And she, yeah. And the question she asks to d distinguish, is he human? It's like, uh, do you get thirsty? <laughs> like she doesn't even know that's the distinguishing factor between a human and a robot now. That's right. all that's and he left. Mock, he mocks her. He mocks her for that. He yeah. says, oh, is that what it means to be human? <laughs> yeah, and it's so, so disturbing. And the way these characters talk in this movie, it's kind of robotic in a way. It's like automation's kind of taking most of the jobs except for STEM jobs, which those STEM jobs are there to help you automate more things and put even more people out of work. So as a, a person with more like the humanities skills – like people skills, she's absolutely fucked. And in order to sort of fit into the system, people are kind of becoming more robotic to the point where like Gwen doesn't even know whether Drake, the the recruiter, headhunter, LinkedIn type voice guy, like is he even a human? She she genuinely doesn't know. Right. And what she so desperately wants for her daughter is to have it's a, it's a great parable of our current sort of uh, quote unquote meritocratic professional class. She really wants right. her daughter to have this sort of human thriving where her daughter is going to dance and meditate and do art. And she wants right. her to have this deeply human sensibility that is almost impossible to attain or might be fully impossible to attain. And, you know, one thing that this movie does is I think more about it because I didn't have a ton of time to process it before doing this. But as you talk about it more, what you really don't see, I feel like, on screen almost ever is like a competent, well-trained, highly educated professional who is like highly presentable. I mean, this woman is uh, – she's aging, but she's a, she's conventionally attractive and she is a very charismatic spokeswoman. All of those things. I I hate both of you. She's young. <laughs> oh, me. sorry. Well, yeah. The point is the point is that she's not just like a you know a young twenty. She's not a twenty-something like, year old. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so all for take all of those factors. You don't see characters like that on screen who are all of that and are completely desperate and their bank account is 
strapped and they're totally fucked. But as we know, like statistically speaking, you know, about half of Americans couldn't come up with 400 bucks in an emergency. Right. Um, you just never see that on screen. So the more I think about this movie, the more radical and more important it feels. Oh, absolutely. So um, this definitely wasn't on my list of questions. And it's precisely the sort of thing that I would ask if I just wanted to make Connor angry. But like, who's the bad guy here? Oh, like, that's what I love about this movie is that there's not exactly a villain. Like in movies about prejudice, it's so common and I think really lazy and easy to have the bad guy. Yeah. Like, oh, there's the sexist. If we beat him up, sexism will be ended. Hooray. <laughs> like it's so easy to do that, but that's not how it really is. And something I found so interesting is that her sort of boss slash ex-boyfriend isn't a villain at all. Like he actually really still, he very clearly still has feelings for her. He cares about her. He like speaks up for her. He really, really wants her and her daughter to be okay. Like he's genuinely a good dude or, or at least he's trying to be a good dude, but he's in this fucked up system where that just, he, his hands are tied. He really can't help her. And even though he has a position of influence at this company, there's so little he can do. Right. Well, even the one- though- Oh, go ahead, man. I just want to say this world, uh, you know, you you almost don't meet anyone who is untouched by a version of the exact same problems the protagonist has because you're the two people at the corporation who are both, they're above her Mm -hmm. and they're maybe a little bit wealthier, but they have the exact same fears for their children. They have, they face the exact same problems. You do meet that woman at the luncheon who seems a little bit more assured in her sinister way, but there's also the other woman at the luncheon who's like clearly dying, you know? (laughs) And they're like, oh, um, this bitch is dying and it's disrupting our brunch. We're <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sick of her shit. Get it together, Karen. Really one of the brutal, uh, <laughs> wonderfully brutal things I've seen in a movie recently. Um, and sorry, Pete, I cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to uh, say that, like, even even the woman uh, above her ex-boyfriend's head that clearly attempted to manipulate the situation to force uh, this body transfer to happen. There are conversations with her like, yes, I'm a mother too. I'd do anything for my kids. Like they they go out of their way to make everybody human, even the people I don't like. Uh, like right. what was that guy's name? The 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 father of the child? Han? Han, yes. He's I mean, such a chode. He's the worst. Oh, like I, visceral is yeah, how could you not dislike him? But like I get it. Like, I get the choices he's trying to make and why he's trying to make him. I just think he sucks ass. Oh, he sucks. And you totally understand why. He's like, hey, shit's getting bad. We have two boys to support. I I can't help you. Get the fuck out. Oh, my God. Like, he's he's a sniveling little fuck, but you kind (laughs) of get where he's coming from a little bit. And that, I think, is something that's so great about this movie, that there's not a bad guy to punch to fix everything. Like, I'm just thinking about, I don't know... Wonder Woman's portrayal of World War One, like there, there's, there's the bad guy, right? There, defeat him in a right. space laser battle. We've ended war. We've solved war. <laughs> it was that guy's fault. Yeah, there's no, there's like we know this is an accelerating technological world, but there's no evil AI to point to. We know there are terrorists uh-huh. in the background because things are blowing up, but they're just sort of floating right. in the background as a sign of ambient chaos. And of course, then right. the the only, the closest thing to a nameable antagonist is just capitalism, that everybody is a victim of this, of the Pretty inhuman much. market forces. It's the system. Yeah. 
I'm incredibly sympathetic towards the terrorists in oh that God, world. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I hate to say that. But yeah, like the whole thing needs to be put under a cleansing sea. It's unlivable. And it's completely convincing. Like, we could have that within 30 years. No well, we problem. We kind of have that now, except it's just very, like, racialized and politi- politicized. I mean, school shootings, mass shootings, these horrifying uh, incidents of like racial violence. I mean, we just had a shooting at a synagogue. And before that, we I think we had we had a shooting at a mosque like that is happening. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, the, the main defining difference between our current world and this one is that not quite as many people are quite as desperate and that the competition is maybe not quite as fierce and with slightly lower stakes. Other than that, it's really just an accelerated right. version of what we have now and, and very rec- very yeah. viscerally, repulsively recognizable in that way. Absolutely. It's well, deeply disturbing. I, I want to be careful about how I say this because I do not relish a visit from the FBI. Right. But I, I would say that another difference is that the targets being chosen to express displeasure are not the ones causing the problem. Right. What, what do you mean by that, Pieta? Um, well, I'm just saying that if I were if I were unemployed and desperate and trying to make things work, uh, my first choice would not be a synagogue. It would probably be a bank. Oh, oh yeah. Right. right. Okay. You mean our, yeah. Uh, yes, folks, this podcast does not condone any kind of violence, uh, <laughs> fictional or otherwise. We're, we're past this. Uh, no, but yeah, you're totally right that there doesn't seem to be a lot of good uh, – revolutionary energy but again the film the film gets that right in saying that the big movement is the neo-traditionalists right that they're they're a reactionary movement they think they can go back to some past golden age and nothing in the film which you can understand why they would want to do that but nothing in the film suggests that that's going to work which is again capturing our world like reactionary you're shooting up a mosque for your I I don't want to speak to the motives of specific people can they acts of terror but the point is that like so much revanchist right-wing violence grows out of reactionary impulses that like are not tied to things that can really happen. It's some fantasy about the past and how we can go back. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's all getting very grim. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, no, you're not wrong, man. Um, well, can we, I think, I think this is a good time to, uh, Go back to the podcast. And I don't mean our podcast. I mean your podcast. Oh, gosh. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about what you're doing and why, when it's going to launch, that sort of thing? Because it sounds pretty cool. Well, we just put up a teaser episode. Um, and basically, the reason I started this podcast is that I I was looking for writing podcasts to listen to, and I didn't really find any that I liked. They tend to be really, really basic, um, and they, like, you'll listen to a writing podcast and it'll give you advice like develop your characters. <laughs> right. Uh. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. I, I figured that one out or like here pl- have conflict. Like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Um, really, really basic. Or I also find that a lot of writing advice, podcasts, writing advice, books give really kind of formulaic advice. So I thought, well, if I don't see something I like, why don't I try and like create that thing that I like? So the purpose of this podcast is it's going to be a writing podcast for people who are already okay at writing, but just kind of want to go up a little better, right? Like I'm going to assume that you know what conflict is and why it's important in a narrative. I'm going to assume, you know, what a climax is. Um, 
but maybe you want to get better. Maybe you want to go from being like mediocre writing to actually being better at it. And so that's sort of what we're going to talk about. It's not going to be a formal how-to guide exactly, like write this way and it'll be good because there's not one universal way to write in order to be good. I mean, I could say, oh, you should have three dimensional characters, but there are some amazing stories that don't have three dimensional characters, like a very old man with enormous wings has really, really flat, really underdeveloped characters, but that's not the point of the story. It's still an amazing story. Um, so it's going to be a, a bunch of discussions about writing and, and writing better. And also some aspects of the writing life of, of the sort of more practical aspect of the writing life. Like we're planning to talk about money issues, like how, how much does a fiction writer actually make? Because way too many people somehow think they're going to be millionaires by writing short fiction. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a really no. cool concept. Um, and so you're saying that you have a teaser already up. Can people find it on like SoundCloud yep. or? Yeah, it's well, right now it's up on Kitty Sneezes. We haven't I don't think we've put it up on SoundCloud yet. Um, we've also got a Twitter. It's just called Right Good, R-I-T-E-G-U-D. So that's a place where you can find it and find more. <laughs> I love it. Right Good. You got to get good. You got to write good. I like it. Yeah, get good. Because <laughs> so a lot of people have asked like, how do I get published? I've been try writing for a long time. How do I get published? I'm like, well, write better. That's how, <laughs> that's, that's how you get published, dude. I'm sorry. That's, I, I like this idea a lot. Are you going to be, uh, are you doing it with guests or do you have like a co-host or? Uh, well, right now it's just me and Matt Keeley. He's a former editor at uh, Hornet Stories. Um, but we are absolutely uh, interested in having guests on. Uh, it's just, we, we haven't been able to reach out to people yet because we're kind of new at this. And, and we're also hoping to have these critique sessions, too, where we just look at people's writing and sort of pick it apart or critique it, what's good, what's bad. Because so much of learning to write isn't just reading, here's how to write, but actually looking at fiction and looking at your own and, and being critiqued. And it's an incredibly painful process, but learning how to look at writing with a really sharp eye and see the problems and see how to fix it. Like that's really, I think part of becoming a better writer. Yeah. That, yeah, that sounds, that all sounds awesome. I'm going to, I think that's probably the third time I've plugged this podcast on our pod, but if you haven't seen, <laughs> I don't know, maybe you already have seen uh, Eric Haynes podcast print run. Have you seen that? No. So he, uh, he's an agent, um, and he and, another, and a woman from his agency have this great pod, which is, it's about the publishing industry more so than like how to write, but it's, it's to my mind, having had some of the same frustrations you had as far as like looking for, uh, just resources for writers that were not super basic. He, I, I think that they, uh, he and Laura have done an amazing job just as sort of a writer facing resource. That's like Frank talk about what's going on in the industry and, and how writers should just approach the industry broadly. So that's probably worth checking out just as something to, you know, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, final thoughts, guys. Uh, I will say that I will be uh, linking to uh, both your published fiction page and your teaser when we publish this, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. I would love that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, RS, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you. All right. Take care. And everybody, go watch Advantageous. It's a good movie. Yeah, go watch it. 